in many ways, the answer to that question, why should I gain from his reward, um, comes to us in John chapter 15. Uh, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there to the Gospel of John chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be considering this morning verses 12 to 17. This passage is still part of what has been called our Lord's farewell discourse, and it's a marveling, uh, marvelous teaching in these last hours of our Lord's ministry to his disciples as he's going to the cross. And so we pick up this morning in John 15, verse 12. Uh, hear the word of the Lord, beloved. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you in, in prayer by the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would bless the hearing and the preaching and the teaching of your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would enable us as your children to understand the truths that are being taught here, that we would not only, though, have an intellectual understanding of your word, that we would not only be a people that have a right knowledge of your word and are able to parse verbs and understand definitions, but that we would be a people who love one another and love you as we ought to. We know that you have given us a high calling here in this passage, Lord, as you did for these disciples. We know that in and of ourselves, we are not capable of producing such love, but yet you have called us to love as you have loved us. And we ask for your strength to do that. And it begins here in understanding your word. And so help us with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so last week when we were looking at what comes before these verses, we were looking at Jesus' union, our union with Jesus, and Jesus used a metaphor to describe that union. And the metaphor that he used was the metaphor of the vine and the branches. And the point of the metaphor was that all of life and fruitfulness for believers, for us, stems from the vine, not the branches. Uh, to be in Jesus is to be fruitful. To be in Jesus is to have life. 
To be apart from Jesus is to be dead. It's to be as dead branches that are eventually cast away and burned and judged. And so a Christian is marked by a fruit-filled life that comes through that relationship and that union with Christ by faith. A fruitful Christian is one who's proving himself to be a disciple of Jesus. But seeing as these disciples, Jesus says, are already clean, that is, they're already in the vine because of the word Jesus spoke to them, Jesus doesn't preach them into the vine, but he exhorts them to live as those who are already in him. Does that make sense? Like, live as you are. Now that you are abiding in me, continue to abide in me so that you might produce more and more fruit, he says. And Jesus assures them in verse 10 that the one who keeps his commandments will always know the fullness of his love, right? You abide in my love, and if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And Jesus says, as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so Jesus is saying that he's always been in the love of the Father. He's, he's always been in union with the Father. And Jesus came to live that life that we couldn't live, that perfect life in obedience to God's law and the Father's law. And he was abiding in that love. It was, it was what marked him and his union and relationship with the Father, is that divine love within the triune Godhead. And so he's saying, to abide in my love, as you abide in my love, you also will obey my commandments, he says. And so this kind of fruit-filled life is what Jesus says brings glory to God and ensures that they will experience the fullness of his love for, for them and the joy which is theirs in Christ. They will meet their chief end. The Westminster Confession asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the first question is answered with, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is, this is our chief end, and Jesus says, Abide in me, abide in my love, and follow and obey my commandments, and you will find joy. And so at this point in verse 12 now, it's really interesting that Jesus wants to make sure that they understand that their being branches that abide in him and abide in his love and bear fruit that these branches are not to be looked at in only an individual manner. We have a tendency within Christendom, especially in the West, to think about being a Christian as, as if Jesus was saying, we are each individual branches that have no union together. In other words, Jesus is a big vine, and we all individually pop out of that vine, and our responsibility is to be that branch by itself and to give glory to God. And you, you see this a lot with uh, Lone Ranger Christians, you might call them, Christians that, that really commit to no body, commit to no church, really, they're on their own mission. There, there, was, there was one individual... They used to come here. He, he was on a mission. 
he was on a mission to bring the gospel here to this church. And he would come by himself every, every Sunday and he would pass out a certain author that he loved and he would try to constantly push his agenda and his mission. And it almost became a sense of where he almost believed like we were not even Christians, like he was evangelizing us. And he would go from church to church and he would evangelize Christians in the church. And this was his mission. And he had this perspective that he had a calling from God and he was going to fulfill that mission that God had called him to. And the church was really insignificant. The other branches really didn't matter because he was walking and serving God. And, and I think what Jesus is doing here in verse 12 as he transitions, he tells them he's the vine and he says that they are the branches. Together they are the branches. It, it's sort of like Paul when he was talking about the church with Christ being the head and we are the body. No one foot hangs out by itself. No one arm hangs out by itself. Together, we are under the head, and we are one body. And I think Jesus is emphasizing their oneness and their unity, and I think he's doing that because he knows what it is they're going to be up against. Remember, Jesus hasn't yet gone to the cross. He hasn't yet died for their sins. But he knows that the world is increasingly growing more and more and more hostile to Jesus. When we started the Gospel of John, the world wasn't all that hostile to Jesus, were they? Jesus turned water into wine, and they quite liked that. Jesus made bread from nothing and fed them, and they quite liked that. Jesus did all kinds of things and miracles, and he healed the sick, and he gave sight to the blind, and the world is looking at Jesus, and they like these things initially, but the more that Jesus teaches them about the gospel and proclaims to them who he is, the more the world and the more Israel at that time begin to reject him, and that hostility is increasing, and Jesus knows that it is about to come where the rejection of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, will eventually bring him to the cross, and because Jesus is being brought to the cross to be crucified, Jesus knows that those who follow him are going to go through the same hatred and rejection, and if they do not know that they are in this together as Christians unified in Christ, they will not survive. And the same thing is true for us, beloved. If we are not united to one another in Christ and we are by ourselves living in the world, you will not survive the onslaught. You have no strength and ability to survive out in the wilderness by yourself without the support and the love of Christ through his children and the church to help hold you up. And Jesus knows this, and he knows what's ahead, and so he wants to encourage them to stick together, to love one another, and primarily because their mission is to bring his gospel into the world. Their mission together is to bring his gospel into the world that hates Jesus and the gospel and hates them. And so this is what he addresses to them. 
And so our Lord includes all of these individual commands that he gives, and he puts it all, includes it all, subsumes it all, you might say, into this one command, and it is that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, when Jesus gives that command, let's just remember, he's not getting rid of the first and the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That commandment still stands. But what he's saying is that genuine love for Jesus is specifically tested by your obedience to the new commandment to love one another. In other words, love for God is tied to and verified by love for other believers. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 4, 20 to 21. How about this? If anyone says, speaks with their mouth, says with their mind, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I tremble at that command. And the reason I tremble at it is because I'm just not that good at loving. Why? Because I still carry on this body of flesh. And my flesh wants to be loved. And my, my body wants to be loved. And it cries to me. And it says, serve me. And love me. And get all that you can. And when it says that, and I give in to that, I'm giving in to the world, I'm giving in to the creature, and I'm neglecting to actually do what God has called me to do, which is to deny myself and to love others, right? To love as Christ loved me. And I know I'm not the only one to battle that. None of us loves perfectly as Christ has loved us. And yet Jesus does say what he desires of us as his people in his body is that we love him, we love one another. And he says, look at my example as I have loved you. And so even though we can't, ooh, we fall short, Jesus says, I want you to look at my example. And so the question then is, let's do that. How has Jesus loved us? Because understanding this is going to help us understand how it is we love one another. Now, we're not going to make atonement for each other's sins, right? I'm not going to lay down my life to pay for your sin. There's only one that could do that, 
and that's Jesus. So we know that is reserved for the Savior. We can't love in exactly those things that Jesus did because only he can redeem. But there are things and examples and pictures of Jesus' life and what he did that actually helps to reflect and show us what does it mean to do this for one another. And so how has Jesus loved us? And Jesus actually says in the very next verse, he tells them, greater love has no one has no greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, Jesus of course laid down his life for his enemies, right? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus is saying here, the greater love knows no one than he lay down his life for his friends. And of course, he's talking to them, his friends, in this context. So it's not to say that Jesus is saying, love for your friends is better than love for your enemies. Laying down your life for your friends is better than laying down your life for your enemies. But he's specifically talking to them as his friends. And he's saying, this relationship that you have with one another, the ultimate demonstration of love is when someone lays down their life for his friends. And so in this level, one level, Jesus is saying, he's laying out the standard, rather, for how they are to love one another. But in another sense, Jesus is also making reference to his own death on behalf, on their behalf. They may not understand that at this point, and they will afterward, Spirit's going to help them with that, but here Jesus is giving a standard, but he's also pointing to himself, and so if we're going to understand what he's saying, let's understand the fullness of Christ and what he did before we try to look at the standard for ourselves, okay? And so here's the first thing about Jesus's love for us. The first thing is that Jesus willingly gave himself to die in the place of, this is the hardest part for us, undeserving sinners. Beloved, we were sinners who willingly broke God's law. Sinners who by nature are are not just a little bit bad in God's sight, but we are sinners who by nature are unacceptable in God's sight. We are actually corrupt in the presence of God, such that the scripture says that, behold, God cannot even look at sin. And this is how, before God, we stand. We are lawbreakers. We are provoking God to his face, we are hateful toward God. We are rebellious against God. We are people who, before God, desired him not at all. After all the grace and the mercy and the goodness and the kindness he pours out to us, we rejected him. And Jesus willingly did something for us in that he actually loved us by dying willingly in our place. And it wasn't because we awakened within him something to love us, right? But because he chose to freely. 
Jesus did not die for you and for me because we awakened something in him where he, he looked at the heavens and he looked at the creation and he said, now here, behold, is a righteous one that I'm going to lay down my life for because they are good and they are noble and they are a kind people and they are a holy people and therefore I'm going to come and to die in their place. That doesn't even make any sense, does it? If you're righteous and holy and good and not rebellious, you don't need a savior, do you? And that's what the world wants you to believe about yourself. The world wants you to believe that you are good and holy and righteous enough to get in God's presence, and yet Jesus knows we're not. And so the Son of God, God's only Son, willingly comes to shed his blood to purchase our redemption and to make atonement for our sins, and it was his pleasure. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9 to 10, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Such is the love of God. Unwilling, a willing sacrifice for unwilling, unlovable sinners. Now keep that in mind. That's Jesus toward us. Well, here's a second thing. You'll notice here that Jesus, I just love this, calls them his friends in the next verse. He says to them, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And just reflect on what a privilege that is for sinful men and women like ourselves to be called friends of Christ. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, maker of heaven and earth, not only pities us to die for our sin and lays down his life to save us by faith in him, but he also calls them his friends. So what does he mean when he says he calls them his friends? How does that relate to as Jesus loved us? This is the only place in Scripture where the term friend is used of Christians. And it's used by the Lord Jesus. Christians, says Jesus, are Jesus' friends. Now, yes, Abraham was called a friend of God. Um, but here, in this passage... Something deeper is being said about their new relationship to him. In other words, there's an element of intimacy here being expressed by Jesus, and he expresses it in two ways. In the first way, the first sense, you have to understand that up until this point, the disciples thought of themselves as servants or slaves of Jesus. So when they looked at Jesus and they listened to their master speak, 
They always and only thought of him as their master and as them as, the, as servants and slaves. And in some sense, that's still true for them. That hasn't changed for them. This is still how they consider Jesus. But Jesus tells them that what distinguishes them now from only slaves is that they know him more fully. They know now the truth about Jesus and all that he came to do. They know his love for them as never before, and he entrusts himself and his word to them. That's what friends do, right? Jesus entrusted the gospel to them. He entrusted himself to them. He is, he is drawing them in and saying, there's something more relational and personal that, that you understand about me when I call you friends. You'll remember earlier in John chapter 2, remember when they heard Jesus speaking and they said, let's follow Jesus. And John tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to these false disciples. Why? Because he knew what was in them. But here Jesus is saying, I give myself fully to you and you are because you're not only my servants but you are my friends a servant or a slave doesn't know the motive the plans or the purpose for which their masters command them right whenever we call upon him we here we have an even great excuse me Masters and slaves don't know the motives of their, servants don't know the motives of their master, but Jesus here says they are not simply servants because he's let them know basically God's heart. Do you remember Moses said to Israel, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, and here we have an even greater revelation given to us in Jesus Christ since God has made himself known to us through his son, God incarnate, and he is now dwelling with us. And so Jesus is saying, I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've given to you. So there's an intimacy and a friendship here. Jesus, as our mediator between God and man, faithfully gives us himself and his word and so he says, I do this because you are my friends. And the result of this is implied by the first point. By calling them his friends, he wants them to know that in their troubles and tribulations to come, in their suffering and rejection by the world, Jesus will not forsake them. Jesus is a true friend who loves at all times, Proverbs 17, 17. Though we fail him, he will never cast us away. He will never put us in jeopardy, but he will always care for us and he will always love us. He's kept nothing back, beloved. I wonder how that strikes you, that Jesus is a Savior 
who wants us to come near to him. Jesus wants you to draw close to him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to spend time with him. He wants to teach us. He wants to conform us. He wants to strengthen us. He, he, he wants us to carry on. And, and we, we are not simply, he doesn't look at us just as slaves. We're not just workers. We're not just laborers in a boot camp. He's not just making you lay railroad on the tracks and do these things for God. But Jesus looks at us and he says, no, I am the kind of savior and the kind of master who actually wants you to come near. And I want you to be with me. He's a friend of sinners. And, and he calls them his his friends. What a privilege to be loved like that by Jesus. It's a staggering love. It's a sacrificial love and it surpasses knowledge and it's a love that the world does not have for its own. If you know Jesus, you know God's love. But in the world, and Jesus, we'll see this next week, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me. But he says, the world would love you if you were of the world. So the world has a kind of love. The world has a love, a kind of love that is out there. And if you know anything about the world, you know that the love that is in the world is not really love at all, is it? It's actually, it's actually a hatred, a selfishness. It's a murderous kind of mentality in the world. What kind of love is it in the world that murders babies in the womb? What kind of love is it in the world that mutilates children when they don't even want to be mutilated? They're confused and we mutilate them in the world. What kind of love is it in the world when marriages are collapsing left and right and murder is rampant on the streets and theft is rampant everywhere? What kind of love is it in the world? The world loves its own. And the way the world loves its own is the way in which you see it on TV. This is the way the world loves. But Jesus says, this is a love that is not like the world loves. Jesus loves purely, faithfully, righteously, sacrificially, self-denying, and he puts sinners he lifts them as he dies for them up into his presence. This is what Jesus does. This is what love does. And so when it comes to us loving one another as Jesus has loved us, we need to remember that we are to see each child of God, when you look at each other, 
We are not individuals in the sense of me before God and you on your own, but when we look at one another, we are to see each child of God as valuable. Each child of God, whether weak or whether strong, whether rich or whether poor, whether intellectual or whether ignorant, there is no child of God who is to be despised and neglected in your love for them. James talks about this a lot in his epistle. We are to have an active love, self-sacrificial, self-denying, and personal love for one another. This is what our Lord says. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Whoa. How you doing? Boy. Thank God for a savior. Praise God for his grace and his mercy. Praise God that he takes my unloveliness and my wretchedness. I, I hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 when he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of wrath? Boy, we need a Savior, and he loved us. But yet, let's not be, let's not be foolish. Jesus expects us to aim high. And that means we are to love one another. Here's a, this is not only for weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 7. You ready? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. That's a hard one. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And when we do that, we are functioning as a healthy church and we are being built up for God's glory. And when we're a healthy church, and not until we're a healthy church, when we're a healthy church and we're functioning in this way, you know what the Lord does? The Lord begins to use his church and his people to present the gospel in a way that the world sees, and they are then drawn to Jesus, and he begins to work through that church for the glory of his name. 
And, and this is what I think Jesus starts to get to with them because he knows what's coming and he knows what they're called to as his 11. And so in verses 16 to 17, he's going to tell them the purpose for which he has called them and chose them. But I think before getting there, I think I, I do need to make two points about Jesus as our friend. Number one, you know this already. John has said it before. Jesus is not saying you become my friends if you do what I command you, okay? He's, he's making the point that those who are his friends live like this. Those for whom he's laid down his life, this is how they behave. They love one another. So what bearing fruit is to proving one is a disciple, loving the brethren is to proving that you are a friend of Jesus, okay? It's not earning that. But secondly, and again, I think this has to be said here, is that we have to remember that this friendship is one way in, in this sense. We are not to understand, and we cannot say that Jesus is our friend if we do what he commands, right? Jesus says, if you do what I command, you are my you are my friends. We cannot say that Jesus is our friend if he does what we command. So this friendship goes one way in that we are the ones brought into his inner circle. He is not brought into yours or mine. Does that make sense, right? We can be called friends of Jesus, but we are not to understand this as meaning that Jesus is our friend in the same way. Neither Jesus or God is ever said to be the friend of anyone in Scripture. Jesus is a friend of sinners, meaning he's come and he's given himself for them, but not, not the friend in this intimate way where Jesus is like your buddy, and a lot of people in a lot of churches, this is how they, they look at Jesus. They look at Jesus as their friend, that Jesus is invited to the inner circle of their friends. As if the disciples were here and Peter is there with, with James and John, and they're, way, where's Jesus? Hey, I like that guy, Jesus. Why don't we get him to come over here and hang out with us, right? This is not what Jesus is. Jesus is a we are friends of Jesus, but Jesus is not our friend in that way. Jesus isn't our buddy. Now, I'm, I'm totally giving you my age here, but when I was a kid, there was a commercial for a doll, and it was called My Buddy. I'm not going to sing the jingle, but this buddy, the commercial was, he'll go with you where you go, and you, takes you, you take this buddy with you and this doll, that's not, that's not how we're to think of Jesus, and that's not what Jesus wants you to think. Je we are friends of Jesus, but we ought not to demean God by making him at par with ourselves. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is Savior. He is to be worshipped and feared and adored. And he calls you his friend. Wow. You're invited 
into his presence. And so at this point, then, Jesus says to his disciples, this is how they're to love one another. And the reason in verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And what he's talking to is to these 11, he's appointed them, his friends, to be his witness. He's appointed them as his disciples to obey him by being a witness to the world to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to proclaim his message, to proclaim his name. And Jesus says, in so doing, you will bear fruit. What an encouragement that is. It's not in vain, he says. Beloved, it's not in vain. He's going to bless them. He's going to increase their, their fruitfulness. And we see that fruitfulness since the day of Pentecost, right? We're here today because of that blessing of Jesus blessing the ministry of his disciples. And it needs to be done in prayer, beloved. And so this is their shared mission together. This is the mission that we're called to carry out. And if we're to carry out that mission, we must learn to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so Jesus says in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. It's a high calling, beloved. Let's pray for God's grace to do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your instructions and for your words here to these disciples and to us, your children. We know that as we reflect on your love for us, that it is unmatched. It is so glorious and beautiful. It is something the world does not have and cannot give. It's a love that we needed because we needed our sins to be forgiven and we needed to be made right with you. And you have loved us in that way, Lord Jesus, on no account of our own. There was nothing good in us that awakened us before you that you might desire to love us because of ourselves, but it was because of your own self and because of your own love and grace and mercy. Help us not to forget that, Lord. Because our temptation, oh God, is to, is to think that in some way we are worthy of your love and worthy of your kindness, whether it's by our labors or whether it's by our service. It's our temptation, oh God, to think that somehow we have earned your love. And when we think that way, Father, we know that we often are unloving to others. And we can demean one another and we can think that that maybe our brother or sister is not worthy of your love. And Lord, shame on us that we have done that. We confess before you, O oh God, our sin. We confess that we have not been obedient to this commandment as you have called us to be. We know, O oh God, that we fall short of this commandment. And we pray now that this afternoon, this morning, that you would help us and renew a desire in us to obey this commandment faithfully. That we would look at one another as, as 
you look at us, that we would love one another as you have loved us, that we would be a self-sacrificing and a self-denying and a, and a patient a brother or sister to one another. We need your help, O oh God, to do that. And we ask for that because we know that we are living in a world that needs to hear your gospel. And so we pray that we would be strengthened to live according to this commandment so that your gospel might go forth and there might be sinners who come and see that they need a savior. And Lord, that may even be true of people that are here this morning. We don't know the hearts of every individual, oh God, but we know that there are unbelievers in the world and there are unbelievers even here and there is a sense in which, oh God, we know that you need to open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. And so may they hear your word proclaimed this morning and may sinners come to an understanding and a knowledge of the truth. May we bear fruit in your name, O oh God, for the glory of your name. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.